0: Talk Radio The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at the fourpersons.com or our blog site at the 4 to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at the fourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen. Luke Haskell.
1: November, 2023, and we're going to have to do a little bit of backtracking because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been on, and part of that was because of uh, technical problems caused by Blog Talk Radio that we had absolutely no control over. Nevertheless, it is a setback, and we're going to, you know, just kind of go over that... uh, just a little bit of a review of where we pick, uh, left off, and then we'll pick up from there. Luke, how are you doing this evening?
2: Hey, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, John, you know, I hate to say it, but I think we're still having a little bit of technical problems. You seem to be in and out. Uh, I, I got the, the words, but uh, uh, there's kind of garbled stuff in between there.
1: You know, it's funny, but I'm hearing exactly the same thing from your end. Um, so uh, all we're gonna have to do is uh, bear with us, folks. Hopefully, after a couple of minutes, it, it'll clear up. But uh, before, we had like four or five straight days we couldn't even connect at all. But now it doesn't sound like we're sounding too good. But uh, just bear with us, and we'll see if uh, we'll see if it works out. You want to try again? Sure. Hey, you
2: know, I, I went back, and it looks like we stopped right about Matthew eighteen, nineteen, uh where we were talking about uh, Jesus saying where, where two or more are gathered, you know, uh, I will be there. And uh, but to do a quick report from there, uh, Jesus says in the midst of them. Well, in the midst of Who? He'll be in the midst of them, the two two or more that are gathered. Well, those who have been baptized into the of Christ. uh, Does this sound cruel? You think so, then your argument is God, because uh, I believe God hears prayers outside the church for those living in charity who are also in invincible ignorance. Yet in our modern informational age, invincible ignorance is getting harder to come by. When you look at the context, you, have, you can't take verses individually. You have to look at the bigger context. Everything that Jesus is doing is through the image of the church he is establishing. So when Jesus says, where two or more are gathered, I will be there, yet those two would be subject to the church that he's establishing. And we hear that your prelates who have the rule over you, they watch over your souls. Well, the only prelates, are, are which is bishops, uh, uh, overseers, that Paul would actually be saying to obey would be the prelates of the only church that Jesus established at Pentecost. Any other prelates you, you would consider, you know, Paul, Paul would probably say, uh, is, is heresy to believe any other prelates, any other person outside the church teaching you the faith? teaching you a faith that is different from what Paul is teaching, actually. And that includes the entire sacramental life and obedience to the faith.
1: Yeah, I'm looking up the Greek right now. Um, so those that are gathered. So one one of the words is um, symphonio which means to agree with one with with one in making a bargain so uh so this is signi- sig- uh, signifies someone who's in agreement and hold on let me find the other the other word okay yeah and the and the other word is uh just ha- has to do with uh the, the tense so it's current tense so it goes back to what you say that two two or more that are gathered together they agree so it's not just two random persons or two or three random persons they're persons who actually agree with what is being taught and the sense of in his name uh, denotes authority it's not uh, in in, in in the name of, like where, where Jesus says, you are to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It denotes the authority of. So it's not just uh, that you're invoking His name, but that you're under His authority. So that's what's that's what's being said here.
2: Exactly. Um, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. His name would be in, in those in the church living. As he wants us to live, right. and and that life is the sacramental life in obedience to the faith.
1: and the reason we know that's true, Luke is because if you go to verses fifteen to eighteen, uh, it's saying that the, that the church is the final authority and the church has the authority to to uh, settle disagreements. And the church has the authority to bind and loose. So these are things very, very clearly showing the authority of the church. So the two
2: or three all together, all in the same context.
1: Right. So the two or three that are gathered together in His name, it is assumed into the text that they're gathered under the authority of the church.
2: Yeah only one church right
1: and i apologize it's it are you still getting the bad sound on your end
2: uh that last sentence was fine uh we we'll we'll, uh, we'll keep going here uh and see how we do okay so we'll, so we'll go to matthew 18:21-22 then came Peter unto him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times Jesus saith to him, I say not to thee. Jews were more focused on revenge than, than forgiveness in, in, in the way they looked at life. And uh, Peter thought it would be superior to the Jews to forgive someone seven times. But Jesus was teaching a new law that would be written on our hearts that we raised in the Beatitudes, as we discussed you know, earlier in this, this series. So he was teaching our souls the, the power of transforming grace by which we are saved by way of love of the cross. And 70 times 7 here is obviously not an expression of an actual number here, but through his call to holiness, we are, we are to forgive everyone every time who comes to us with a contrite heart and even for our own good sometimes when uh, uh, when we come on situations where we'll forgive those who do not have a contrite heart, but the forgiveness will lead our our, our souls to peace, you know, in some situations. We're not going to get the forgiveness from the person. So Jesus says, be holy as I am holy, or be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, which turns us – his words in Matthew, uh, back in Matthew 5, says, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that persecute and, and culminate you.
1: You know, Luke, I'm gonna to have to disagree with you on this one. Um I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I think Jesus was speaking um literally, and um, you know, when you when you cross me that. Four hundred and ninety first time. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I just can't let you up the hook anymore. You get, <laughs> get four hundred and ninety, and that's all that you get. You know, you understand what I'm saying? So, listen, this is yeah, one of those verses. This is one of those verses that you point to when they bring up Matthew twenty three nine. Say so Jesus says, "Call no man father," and Jesus says, "Do not sit in the first pew," and call no man teacher. And call no man master. And if your if your hand be thy fault, cut it off. If your eye be thy fault, pluck it out. Let the dead bury their dead. Uh, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Uh, do not pull the speck out of your neighbor's eye until you first pull the wooden beam out of your own eye. Folks, <laughs> Jesus spoke in hyperbole. This is like exaggerated language. Jesus does not want you keeping score and say, well, I got to tell you, you're up to 487. Now, you know, you, know, you <laughs> only got, you only got three more shots, you know? No, come on, folks. It, it's context. Like you said, it's taking things in context. If Jesus has called no man father. Then Jesus himself in John 8, 5, 8, 56 says, if Abraham was your father, you would have believed in me. So, uh, Are we supposed to leave the pew, the first pew in the church, empty? Nobody's supposed to sit there. Uh, You know, Jesus is talking about do not elevate yourself. For those who exalt themselves will be humble. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Listen, there's been many times when I sit in the first pew in the church, not because I'm exalted, not because I'm trying to exalt myself, but because my hearing is so bad. (laughs) You know, I have to sit up front. So does that mean am, am I being condemned? Am I being disobedient to, to to Jesus? These are the kind of things that Jesus speaking of the heart. If you're counting seven times, you know, if, if you're approaching it from that mindset, hey, listen, I done forgave you seven times. You know, I, I can't I can't do anymore. Um, Jesus has forgiven us a lot more than seven times. Uh, Luke, what do you think? Uh, let me
2: see in the last hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thoughts that come up in our head that we're constantly fighting against. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're a as of, a, and, a, and, and, of fighting for
1: holiness. And one of the biggest, uh, struggles that I face, one of the biggest struggles that lots of us face is, is just what you said, that, uh, that need for revenge that need to get even this has been something that uh, that I personally have struggled with to to want to settle the score with people who have done you wrong um, you know and, and people have asked me this Luke people in my life have asked me well you know I have a real hard time with 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 forgiveness and they ask me what do you do to have an easier time with forgiveness well what I do is I remember the words of Jesus the measure by which you measure will be measured out. To you, And when I get to the throne of heaven, when I get to that judgment seat, I do not want him pulling that measuring t- tape out of the desk. I don't want him pulling <laughs> it out. So um, I always try to remember that. The measure by which you measure, the same measure will be used against you.
2: And I'll back to that parable where one of the servants uh, uh, was uh, basically... Uh, Given, you know, uh, a gift from the king, and he turns around and does not give the same compassion to another person. Right. So.
1: And for those and the, for those people who don't understand that particular parable, uh, the man owed a a was it a hundred months of gold or something like that. And and, and he, what it turned out to be is a tablet is like a hundred pounds. This man owed like ten thousand pounds of gold. He owed like two billion dollars with a B, two billion dollars worth of gold. <laughs> but by, by our current, uh, you know, rendering, and, and the guy the smaller debt to him was about, it was about eleven bucks. So he went out and had the guy thrown in the in the jail over eleven bucks when he had the debt of, you know, two billion. Uh, forgiven him. Uh, I, I don't want that $2 billion debt. Uh, and, and again, this is not literal. This is not literal be, because it's not a... The, the, the debt that you owe for a mortal sin is not $2 billion or 2 billion years. It is an infinite debt. It is a debt that you cannot pay. That's why hell is eternal. If you try to pay that debt yourself, well... <laughs> You got all eternity to pay it off. Um, You know you can satisfy God's justice by one of two ways: you can satisfy it by mercy, or you can pay the debts yourself. Trust me, you don't want to go through door number two.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, probably should move on here. I think we're gonna we're gonna end up in probably around Matthew. The end of Matthew 20, and we'll we'll probably won't get through it all again. But uh, I guess it really doesn't matter as long as we continue off from where we leave off. Mm -hmm. So Matthew 18, 23 to 35, we'll start reading there. Therefore the kingdom of heaven likened to a king who would take an account of his servants. And when he had begun to take account one as brought to him that owed him 10,000 talents, And as he had not wherewith to pay it, here we are. (laughs) Speak of the devil. His Lord Lord commanded that he should be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. But that servant falling down besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And the Lord that moved with pity let him go and forgave him the debt. But when that servant was gone out, he found one of his fellow servants that owed him an hundred pence. And laying hold of him, he throttled him, saying, Pay hey, what thou owest. And this fellow servant, falling down, besought him, saying, Have patience with me, I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he paid the debt. Now his fellow servants, seeing what was done, were very much grieved, and they came and told their lord all that was done. Then his lord called him and said to him, Thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all the debt, because thou thought of me. Shouldest not thou then had compassion also on thy fellow servant, even as I had compassion on thee? And his lord, being angry, delivered him to the torturers, and tell me all the debt. So also shall my heavenly Father do to you, if you forgive not everyone his brother, as we forgive them that trespass against us. Matthew, as a tax collector, could also be stylizing Jesus's message here. Uh, the Jerome commentary tells us that his parable of the king Jesus is kingdom Jesus is establishing. This is a sacramental kingdom that is united to heaven. So when we think of this kingdom, we must understand that we are baptized into this kingdom. But in order to obtain an eternal entrance, we must live in charity and in a state of grace. Therefore, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1, as he writes a Catholic, a universal letter to the church, he says, as all things of his divine power, which appertain to life and godliness, are given us the knowledge of him, who has called us by his own proper glory and virtue, by whom he hath given us most great and precious promises, that by these you may be partakers of the divine nature, flying the corruption of that concupiscence which is in the world. And you, employing all care, minister in your faith virtue, and in virtue knowledge, and in knowledge abstinence, and in abstinence patience, and in patience godliness, and in the love of brotherhood, beloved brotherhood charity. For if these things be with you and abound, they will make neither empty nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For these things with blind groping have forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, brethren, labor the more, that by good works you may make sure you're calling an election. For doing these things you shall not sin at any time. For so an entrance shall be mentored to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of the Lord Savior Jesus Christ. So, even though we have entered the kingdom through our baptism, we are called to be living in a life of charity in order to obtain an eternal entrance. For at our death, as Paul says, we see now through a glass in a dark manner, but then face to face, Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And now there remains faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these is charity. So back to the parable. It is a Old Testament way of referring not only to slaves, but also to court officials or ministers. Debt of 10,000 talents are are in layman's terms a a whole lot of debt, as you described. Um, Mm -hmm. The parable is is a warning of not abusing the divine mercy of God. So it is another way of describing the sin against the Holy Spirit, even. This would include being given the gift of finding truth, but not dropping everything or in allegory, even denying mother and father in order to follow Christ. But uh, Haddix focuses on this denial of mercy for, for one who has already received mercy and tells us uh, regarding verse 35. He says, so also shall my heavenly father do to you. In this parable, the master is said to have remitted the debt, and afterwards to have punished the servant for it. God does not in this manner with us, but we may here observe once for all that in parables, diverse things are only ornamental to the parable itself, and caution and restriction is to be used in applying them Not that God will revoke a pardon once granted and his works without repentance. It means God will not pardon or rather that he will severely punish ingratitude and the humanity of man who after received from God his liberal pardon of his grievous transgressions refuses to forgive the slightest offense committed against him by his neighbor who is a member, nay, a son of his God. This ingratitude. May justly be compared With the 10,000 talents As every grievous Offense committed against God Exceeds in an infinite Degree any offense against Man This forgiveness must be real It's not pretended From the heart mm-hmm. Not in word and appearance only Sacrificing all desire of revenge All anger, hatred, and resentment At that shrine of charity pardon we could call that baptism apart due to that gift you know we are obligated to follow that charity
1: right so let me let me expand to what Luke is saying here because Luke I think what you're saying here is really important so I, I want to kind of amplify it a little bit so you're absolutely right when when Jesus forgives us as uh, forgives us of a sin of a mortal sin the eternal punishment that's due to that sin is is revoked so uh you, you know you're not it's not as if you're being put back in double jeopardy for the sin uh, however there is still a temporal punishment attached to the sin okay and then so the temporal punishment is the temporal consequences that we must suffer as a result of the sin. And we also have to look at the fact that here, this is not a reinstatement of the previous sin. This is a new sin. The new sin is that he, he refuses to pardon the other individual. He refuses to forgive the other individual and the greatness of the sin for which he himself was pardoned adds to the malice of his forgiveness of the other servant. So it, it's, it adds to the malice because he's received this, this great mercy, this tremendous mercy. And so he had just that much more motivation to be merciful to this other servant. And yet, despite this great mercy that he himself has received, he shows no mercy to the fellow servant. So having received mercy and refusing to show mercy, well, the mercy that he refused to show to the other servant has that much more malice attached to it, that much more evil intent attached to it. And therefore, the severity of the sin is that much more. And... Catholics call this uh we we refer to this as as full and deliberate knowledge and consent. That's what we refer to the, uh, this of the the full realization and knowledge of the gravity of the sin and the consequences of it, and yet we move forward with the sin anyway it's It's one thing to refuse to show mercy. If you yourself do not know what mercy looks like, but if you are the recipient of a great mercy and you refuse to show even a small mercy in in return, there's a great uh, malevolence and malice attached to that.
2: And look at the mercy we're given, baptism, communion, uh confession, In the presentation of the Holy Eucharist, the blood of Christ is poured out on us to destroy venial sins. And so all the Catholics in the world walk out of that church after experiencing that mercy, and some go to daily mass, some go to weekly mass. But then it almost, uh, for a lot of us, subconsciously places us. In that desire to continue in that mercy for others,
1: and and again,
2: it's it's part of the human condition. It's
1: very very difficult to forgive someone who you know shows deliberate malice towards you, shows deliberate um, spite towards you. It, it's hard to be forbearing with that person, but we're called to do so anyway. That's what we're called to do. But now this. This other servant who owed him the $11 was pleading for mercy. He was pleading for mercy. Um, It it wasn't as if he was being, uh, you know, hateful or angry or or not acknowledging his debt or anything. Um, He he, he wasn't pleading for release from the debt, he was pleading for time to pay the debt. Uh, And yet, the servant who had received the greater mercy. And by the way, uh, for those of you listening, uh, the servant who owed the greater debt by the prevailing wage of the time would have to have worked over 200,000 years, 200,000 years is what it would have taken him to pay off the debt. And yet he refused to forgive this other person uh, who owed 11 bucks. That's
2: pretty amazing when you think about it. And when you yeah. place that under the mercy forgiven through the sacramental life, it, it makes you even, you know, think about it even more, you know, trying to focus on holiness and trying to focus on forgiveness for all the mercy we've given.
1: Right. And this is exactly the point that Jesus is making here. He's using this, mm-hmm. you know, this hyperbolic example to show the, the mercy I'm asking of you is nothing compared to what you've been giving. It's a, it's not yeah. even a it's not even worthy of comparison. What I'm asking of you compared to what I've given you.
2: Okay, we're on Matthew chapter 19 now. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll go ahead and read Matthew uh, one through 9. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these words, he departed from Galilee and came to the coast of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him. And he healed them there. And there came to him the Pharisees, tempting him, saying, Who answering said to them, Have ye not read that he who made man from the beginning made the male and female? And he said, For this cause shall man leave father and mother, and shall leave to his wife, and they shall be in one flesh. Therefore, now they are not two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. They say to him, why then did Moses command to give a bill of divorce and to put away? He saith to them, because Moses, by reason of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, that whoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another committeth adultery, and he that shall marry her that is putteth away committeth adultery. Finishing up his mission in the Galilee, where both the Jews and Gentiles heard his voice. Luke refers to his final leaving in the Galilee in uh, Luke 9.51, when he wrote, and it came to the days of his assumption were accomplishing that he steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem. Here we're moving toward the, the true Passover and uh, and uh, his crucifixion. So remember from chapter four where, where we talked about Matthew quoting Isaiah nine two, who said that a people of darkness have seen a great light. In John eighteen, Jesus says uh, again. Jesus spoke to them, saying, "I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness." but will have the light of life. And, of course, as we discussed Apostles' Old Testament scripture, the tradition was to follow through verses that come after, just as when Jesus quoted the beginning of Psalms 22. So in Isaiah 9.6, we see this great light, and we follow through. For a child is born to us, and a son is given to us, and the government is upon his shoulder. Be called wonderful, counselor, God the mighty, the father of the world to come, the prince of peace. His empire shall be multiplied, and there shall be no end of peace. He shall sit upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and strengthen it with judgment and with justice from henceforth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And of course, as we previously discussed. Jesus is the king of David, and then and, and, and the uh, reestablished kingdom of David is here being established in the sacramental form, a physical sign that gives spiritual grace. The physical body of Christ is, is the sacramental form of the reestablished kingdom of David. Uh, Jesus established his supreme ambassador, as Isaiah 22 tells us, an ambassador who even wears the king's robes, which is the sign of his dignity, the dignity, the dignity of, of the king, the <coughs> and of course referring to the papacy here. So let's move on. So again in these passages, uh, it shows us the arrogance of the Pharisees who are trying to trip Jesus up when it comes to the Jewish belief system after previous attempts failed uh, badly. I mean, uh, their sophistical arguments are failing right and left. Of course they will. They will get up against God. So every time Jesus makes them look like fools, and it appears that they and their egos had a hard time continuously being bested by this, you know, partner from Nazareth, uh, uh, you hear, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? So the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus into an act of blasphemy. Uh, it is written in Deuteronomy, if a man take a wife and she find not some clean, cleanness, he shall write a bill of divorce. And in Malachi 2.16 says, when thou shalt hate her, put her away. So <clears throat> so this is, this is also the time when we talked about earlier. We said that people thought differently during these times. There was something different in the thinking process. They did not have the charity. They had code Hammurabi, and eye for nine eye, and tooth for a tooth. And charity really didn't come into being until the, you know Pentecost. So the Pharisees obviously plotted beforehand together on, on giving this question to Jesus. Uh, if he said it was lawful, then they would accuse him of doing so simply out of a personal desire, which would be ungodly. So, Jesus, knowing their plot, refers back to scripture and understanding that was present before the Jews were corrupted by 400 years in Egypt, before they're given the second legislation of Mosaic law for worshiping the golden calf. Now, the second legislation, which <coughs> primary is a pedagogy, meaning a strict schoolmaster for a child, uh, an impetuous child, basically, I mean, they were always crying out, uh, uh, is Israel means stiff-necked people. So Jesus refers to something that was before the Old Covenant was established because through him the New Covenant was being established and prophecy was being fulfilled that hearts of stone would be broken and new hearts would be given and the laws would be written on our hearts. So he responds for the book of Genesis. So God created man in his own image, image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. In this context, Jesus says, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. So Jesus showed the relationship that the Pharisees were seeing in a legalistic way and challenging him in a legalistic way was originally established by God in a spiritual bond. It's incredible that in, in, in marriage bond to the workings of God, which we call sacramental, it's an image of the Trinity. So the Lord God casted the sleep on Adam, and when he was fast asleep, he took one of his ribs and filled up flesh for it. And the Lord God built the rib, which he took from Adam into a woman and brought her to Adam. And Adam said, this now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For a man shall leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two and one flesh, and they are both naked to wit, Adam and his wife, and were not ashamed. So going on with Pharisees. So the Pharisees figuring out that they have been bested by the one who actually created most of their laws. Uh, says, why then did Moses command to give the bill of divorce and to put away? And Jesus answered, because Moses' roots of your heart permitted you to put away your wives from the beginning of not he says, I say to you that whoever shall put away a wife, except it be vacation, and shall marry another that commiteth adultery, and that shall marry her that put away committeth adultery. Want wanted to pre- repeat that because this is where we're, where we're going. So what was changing here? Remember, Ezekiel 36 shows us, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will take away the stone heart of your flesh and give you the heart. and I will make covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting the Lord, the sanctifier of Israel, and my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forever. That, In addition to the softening of hearts, spiritual Israel is the church, as Paul told us in Romans 9. So the divorce decree was given because, as we discussed earlier, the world before Christ was Code Hammurabi, an eye for an eye, and the pedagogy of the Jews of rule, fear, and temporal punishment. So if the law of divorce was not given by God, you might have had people putting away their wives through murder. So St. Augustine said that monogamy, as well as the indissolubility of marriage, was instituted from the beginning by the Almighty. Genesis 11.24 says, Christ and others and to have that humility to make a marriage work. So something that would create more harm than continue to be married, of course, and these costs are very limited, especially since in, in this brief moment we call time, the marriage mirrors the hypostatic union of the divine nature of Jesus with our human nature and the marriage of Christ to his bride, his church. So in calling divorce unlawful, he is also expressing a spirit mystery of his relationship with his body, the church. So Paul showed us this when he wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he may sanctify it, cleansing it by the lover of water and word of life, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, without having spot a wrinkle or a such thing, but that it should be holy and... Without blemish, so also ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth As also Christ does the church, because we are members of him, body of his flesh and of his bones. Uh, this is not a, a metaphor. This is a heavy reality. For this of man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they shall be two in one flesh. This is a great sacrament, but I speak of Christ and uh, the church. Uh, Jesus goes on uh, and says, And I say to you that whoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. So, w- why? First off, because God's designed is to show the spiritual union to the marriage, the sacrament, physical sign that gives spiritual grace. And divorce destroys the image of the sacrament bond and makes it more of how a legal agreement and – or a dissolution of a legal agreement. So it's, it's like modern secularism. Mm-hmm. So as for this legitimate reason for putting away a wife, uh, let's go to Haddock's commentary. We're almost finished with this. Question. So uh, Haddock is referring in verse 9, I say to you. It is worthy really of remark that in the parallel text in Mark 10.2 and in Luke 16.18 and Paul, Corinthians 7.10, omit the exception and also that Matthew himself omits it in the second part of the verse and says absolutely that he who shall marry her that is put away commit adultery. It perhaps crept in here from 32, where it is found in a phrase very similar to this, but which expresses a case quite different. Divorce is no case admitted but in that of adultery. This is what Christ teaches uh, back in 532. And the the exception is marked in the two texts, but in this very case, the separated parties connect on Cannot contract a second marriage without again committing adultery, as we must infer from the comparison of this text with the parallel text of Mark and Luke. If we do not understand it in this manner, the case of the adulteress will be preferable to the case of her who should be put away without any crime of her own, as in the child to marry again, which the latter would not be allowed. Uh, Augustine refers to this as very, um, and Jerome, in his high uh, commendation of the noble Viola says of her that through she was the innocent party, the marrying again, she did public penance. The doctrine of the church was confirmed also in the General Council
1: of Trent. Yeah, so let's let's talk about this part where, where Jesus says that a person who looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with her in his heart. Because all of this that Luke is talking about here is the point that Jesus is try, trying to drive home, that sin is, in essence, springs from rebellion of God from the heart. That's where it originates. Some would say it sounds like Jesus is being unreasonably strict here. He's not. Jesus is not talking about the person who merely receives a temptation, but the one who deliberately consents to that temptation with full knowledge. Should he be pardoned because he hasn't yet had the opportunity? So if a man decides and makes the decision that he's going to commit adultery, And on the way to the woman's home, he's killed in a car accident. Should he be let off the hook because he he didn't make it there? No, of course not. Um, Should a would-be assassin receive a uh, uh, pardon because the victim uh, miraculously survives? No, of course not. So, you know, we think about this. We think about a person about to accept Christ. Uh, and be baptized is struck by lightning. Does does God say, oh, well, tough luck. <laughs> you didn't make it. No. So in good and evil, it is the heart that matters. It is the intention that matters. And, and the person is going to be credited, good or bad, for where the heart is. Uh, because for where the heart is, the action will, that's what Jesus is teaching here. Luke, are you there Luke? Did we lose Luke here? We may have yeah, looks like we looks like we lost Luke. um let me see if I can call him from the show. Bear with me just a second, folks.
2: Now, did I cut out or did you cut out?
1: Uh, Looks like we, we lost you, so I called you from the show. Are you there now?
2: I'm on the phone now.
1: So I don't know how that
2: happened. It
1: was going fine. (laughs) It just looked like the switchboard dropped you. So we we got you now. We got you back. So uh, let me read what I was saying, because I don't, again, so I don't know what point I lost you at. So basically I was saying that Jesus is talking about a person, not about a person who merely receives a temptation, but the one who consents to the temptation with full knowledge. And a person is not going to be – Pardoned if he attempts to uh, kill someone and the person survives. Uh, By the same token, Jesus is not going to be condemned if the person uh, is to accept him and be baptized and then the person dies on the way to baptism. Are you there? I hear a phone ringing in the background. Um, I'm sorry.
2: Hold on. Okay. I'm sorry. Hold on one second we're having a great day today. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, okay, it, it should be gone. <laughs> but it sounds a lot clearer than you sound over the,
2: over the switchboard. So, well, that's, that's just weird. <laughs> yeah. Cause I had the, uh, this the snowball mic and everything. So, uh,
1: yeah, so uh, they got something some going wrong on their end. Yeah. So, all right. So, Go ahead and pick it up with uh, Matthew nineteen ten
2: to 12. Sounds good. So his disciples say unto, hi, unto him, if the case of a man with his wife be so, it is not expedient to marry, who said to them, all men take not his word this word, but they to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who were born so from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made so by men, and there are eunuchs, who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. He that can take it, let him take it. So Jesus is saying that in this situation it is better to be unmarried, yet not all men can accept this. So Jesus goes on to give them some examples. And uh, I, yeah, I, I like to go to Haddock's for, for for some of this stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it just gives such a, a, a clear understanding uh, the uh, the 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 uh, the level of uh, collegiate understanding in, in in this book is just amazing. So, uh, Haddix goes on and describes verse twelve, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. It is not to be taken in the literal sense, but of such who have taken a firm and commendable resolution of leading a single life. He that can receive it, let him receive it. Some think that. Uh, to receive in this and the foregoing verse is to understand and so will have the sense to be he that can understand what I have said of different eunuchs, let him understand it as when Christ said elsewhere, he that hath ears to hear let him hear, but others expect it as an admonition to men and women not to engage themselves in a vow of living a single life, unless after a serious deliberation they have good grounds to think they can duly comply with this vow. Otherwise, let them not make it. Thus St. Jerome uh, on this place and St. Chrysostom, where they both expressly take notice that this grace is granted to everyone that asketh and beggeth for it by prayer, so to the crown and glory of which state, let those aspire who feel themselves called by heaven. So we have the celibate priesthood here. So we'll go on to Matthew nineteen thirteen. Uh, then then were little children presented to him that he should impose hands upon them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said to them, "Suffer the little children and forbid them to come unto me." For the kingdom of heaven is for such. Now, it was a custom to bring children to men who were understood to be holy men for a blessing. So, as uh, it is now custom to bring children to, uh, to be blessed by the priests and, and the bishops in baptism and confirmation. So, scripture does not say who was bringing the children, but it appears that they did so because they understood Jesus as, at a minimum, a holy man. And, of course, many were seeing him as the Messiah. And it appears that the apostles who had not yet experienced the Holy Spirit saw this as frivolous and rebuked the ones bringing the children. Then Jesus corrected them. Jesus said, suffer the little children and forbid them not to come to me, for the kingdom of heaven is for such. So Jesus, again, here is showing us that the church he's establishing contains a physical element in its sacramental form, and we baptize our children into the kingdom of heaven, the Catholic Church, through which they come into the mystical body of Christ. We bring them to Jesus. Jesus then placed his hands on the children, as the apostles would later do in confirmation, confirming people in the spirit. So isn't it interesting that Jesus is
1: juxtaposing celibacy... Against the childlike innocence of the children So uh, imagine men abstaining from women for the kingdom (laughs) Where, Where would we see such a thing that's outrageous Oh yeah, I remember Revelation chapter 14
2: Yep, yep And that is the higher calling I mean, of course, the church, you know, looks at marriage as a sacrament, but Paul and uh, Christ refer to celibacy as the higher calling, and this is a hard one to get through to Protestants. Protestants.
1: <laughs> right, because they they think that we're somehow
2: demeaning
1: marriage and making marriage seem 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 dirty. And no, <laughs> hello. <laughs> Marriage is a sacrament in the Catholic Church. Okay, so it is a it is a high and holy calling. Uh, but the uh, you know the, cel- the celibacy of the priest, the ordination of the priest, is an even higher calling. So it's not unholy and holy; it's holy and holier. That's uh that's the comparison that needs to be made here.
2: It's 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 giving an awful lot. That's for sure. Yeah. and we should really you know we should really appreciate our priests. Yeah, and they're basically just you know their family is us. So, so we're at Matthew 19. Let's go 16 through 26. And behold, one came and said to him, "Good master, what good shall I do that I may have that I may have everlasting life?" who said to him, Why askest thou me concerning good? One is good, God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which? And Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith to him, All these I have kept from my youth. What is yet wanting to me? Jesus saith to him, If thou wilt be perfect, go sell what thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man had heard this word, he went away sad, for he had many great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Amen, I say to you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when they had heard this, the disciples wondered much, saying, who then can be saved? And Jesus beholding said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. One possibility is that this person who approached Jesus could have been doing it from the same reasons the Pharisees did, and he may have wanted to trip him up, yet again, Jesus knowing that his words will be present for eternity, used the occasion for a lesson to a much larger audience. The person as an unbeliever did not understand who Jesus was, but like when Jesus addressed uh, was address, addressing the Sanhedrin in Luke twenty two seventy, 70, uh, where it is Jesus' enemies who first recognize who Jesus is. Uh, let's read uh, Luke twenty two seventy 70 so, so we get a little bit of context there. And as soon as it was day, the ancients of the people and the chief priests and scribes came together, and they brought him into their council, saying, if thou be the Christ, tell us. And he saith to them, if I shall tell you, you will not believe me. And if I shall also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. But hereafter the Son of Man shall be sitting on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, art thou then the Son of God, who said, you say that I am? And they said, what need we any further testimony, for we ourselves have heard it. From his own mouth. So Jesus, in one way, is giving a confirmation of who he is through one who addresses him in dishonest sophistry. We we find so much of this same sophistry, and I guess, in because of all the time I've been on on this these chat rooms, you know, over twenty years, it's just it uh, it's difficult to get through this sophistry. Protestants try to trip up Catholics even though Jesus said back in chapter 5, neither shalt thou swear by thy head because thou canst not make one hair white or black, but let your speech be yea, yea, no, no, and that which is over and above there is of evil. So he's being exposed to sophistry over and over and over again. And he returns a yes, yet he'll let your yes be yes and your no be no. So another possibility, which uh, in, in this storyline, is how Mark addressed this in Mark 10, 22, where he says this person went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. Uh, I bring him a possibility of two different courses here because it appears that the apostles being individuals and free-thinking individuals sometimes use the same stories to portray different messages. So God is the only true good, and all goodness emanates from God. So we as Christians can do no true good outside of the graces of God. He is the unchangeable good. So Jesus goes on to teach a lesson that does not focus on temporal things because we will be here for less than a blink of an eye compared to eternity, but a lesson on a focus of the eternal good. So this person does not believe Jesus is God, so Jesus may be insinuating that he address him as God or cease to call him good. This is also after leaving Galilee, moving toward Jerusalem in preparation for the cross. So Jesus is saying, if thou should be perfect, basically renounce the material world, but a deeper understanding may be a focus on the eternal to the point that you place no excuse of materialism, our comforts, our worldly pursuits in a position where they distract from the good that flows through you from God. So Christians are called followers of Christ, and this includes the virtues he expressed and lived. Obviously, again, this is this is much more than faith alone.
1: Yeah, and, and I agree with what Luke just said here. I want to amplify on it because I, I have also heard this text used to say that, Jesus is denying that he's God here. See, see, Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? Only God is good. So Jesus is denying his you know, his divinity here. No, 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 no. Because if you're using that line of reasoning, Jesus would also be declaring himself evil. <laughs> why do you call me good? I'm not good. That, that's what you're <laughs> implying here. So that's not what's happening here. The man calls him good teacher. And the Greek word is, Kalos. The man is recognizing Jesus only as one who conveys God's, God's word. So good is a relative term. So Jesus is conveying that he is God's word. <laughs> he is goodness itself. So this is the point that Jesus is making. Why do you call me good and yet not recognize that I am the very good that you are addressing? I'm not just someone who is good, I am goodness itself. That's that's the point that Jesus is uh is stressing here.
2: Yes, yes. So at Matthew nineteen, let's do twenty-three to twenty-six. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Amen I say to you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven.
1: Let me me interrupt you
2: for a second, Luke. Let me interrupt Uh you
1: for a second. I just want to remind our listeners that Jesus never used hyperbole, okay? I just never, not one time, okay? Go ahead, please continue.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, did I go over that already? Again, so I went over that. Uh, yeah.
1: Again, I say to you, it is uh, easier I I think for camels to nineteen twenty
2: seven through thirty. Does that sound right? Go ahead. So we're at Matthew nineteen twenty seven through thirty. So then Peter, answering, said to him, "Behold, we have left all things, and have followed thee. What therefore shall we have?" And Jesus said to them, "Amen, I say to you." That you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the seat of his majesty, you shall sit on twelve seats, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that hath left house, or brethren, or sister, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an, an hundredfold, and shall possess ever, everlasting life. And many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So what did did he mean uh, by followed me in in the regeneration? What did he mean by that? Regeneration means rebirth, uh, reclamation, reconstruction, transformation, about faith, and, and alteration. So Christians are those who follow Christ. In this context, Jesus could be referring to the general resurrection because The apostles are promised to sit on 12 seats, so this could refer to, uh, in in the end, when our bodies and souls are are reunited, during this time is the judgment uh, of the 12 tribes, meaning the entire world, and even the angels. So everyone who chose Jesus instead of the world, those who are obedient to his word above the deceptions of the material world, shall receive a hundredfold. And Haddox explains this uh, this way: shall receive a hundredfold. As St. Mark, we read a hundredfold now, in this time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. Which a hundredfold is to be understood of the blessing in, in this life, of interior consolations, of the peace of a good conscience, and in general of spiritual gifts and graces, which are much more valuable than all temporal goods. And besides these spiritual graces in this world, he shall have everlasting glory in the world to come. Our Savior does not here lay down a precept of separating from wives, but as when he before said, he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He did not counsel, much less command us to lay violent hands upon ourselves. So here he teaches us to prefer the duties of piety to every other consideration. As Chrysostom says, the reward will be a hundredfold by the accumulation of spiritual gifts and graces in this life infinitely superior to all we have left and the inheritance of life eternal in the next and There's your explanation of the hyperbole
1: yeah and and clearly Jesus wants us to know that he's not indifferent to the suffering of those who've been estranged from family because of him and and some of us have experienced that, and and it is a it is a great suffering, Luke. I mean, let's not whitewash it. It is a tremendous suffering to be estranged from a family member or a loved one uh, for the sake of your of your belief in Christ. But the other thing is, you you re, you receive a hundredfold. Well, think about this. Jesus is not indifferent to your suffering. For the sake of that person. So part of the blessings and the graces that we see or that we receive is that our suffering earns graces for that person, towards that person's conversion. Uh, And that, uh, you know, Jesus is, is in some way using your estrangement, using the very estrangement caused by their lack of faith. To obtain graces used to convert them. So it's it's God is very very good at taking our actions that we intend for evil and using them uh, for good. And the ultimate example of that is is the crucifixion. Clearly, the devil didn't mean the crucifixion for good, uh, but God used the greatest evil ever committed, the the theocide, uh and used it for the salvation of. The human race. So, Jesus is saying here that He identifies with that, with with those who who are uh, persecuted and separated from their families, and those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, uh, for they will be comforted. And and I think this is a very very important message, especially for this time of year, because families who are estranged from loved ones feel it most keenly during the holidays. And all I can tell you is just Keep the faith. Keep praying for them. Keep offering up your sufferings and your sacrifices for them. And God is not indifferent to your suffering.
2: Yeah, I got a lot of family members who were born into the faith and even, you know, prayed the rosary in our Thursday night rosary, padre Peel Prayer Group. And as soon as they hit the teen years, they went off to Calvary Chapel and things like that. And Mm -hmm. You know, they're all in love with Christ, you know, but uh, I definitely pray for them to come home Yeah So we're at chapter 20 So we'll start with Matthew and we'll read 1 through 16 here Another parable The kingdom of heaven is like to to a householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard And having agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing in the marketplace idle. And he said to them, go you also into my vineyard, and I will give you what shall be just. And they went their way. And again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did in like manner. But about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he saith to them, Why stand you here all the day idle? They say to him, Because no man hath hired us, he saith to them, Go ye also into my vineyard. And when evening was come, the lord of the vineyard, saith to his steward, Call the laborers and pay them their hire, beginning from the last, even to the first. When therefore they were come, that came about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first also came... They thought that they should receive more, and they also received every man a penny. And receiving it, they murmured against the master of the house, saying, These last have worked but one hour, and thou hast made them equal to us, that thou borne the burden of the day and and the heats. But he answered, said to one of them, Friend, I do thee no wrong, Dost thou not agree with me for a penny. Take what is thine and go thy way. I will also give to this last even as to thee. Or is it not lawful for me to do what? I will. Is thy evil because I am good? So shall the last be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. (laughs) So when I look at this parable, I kind of personally look at those who came last and receive equal pay as those who are present in our world now. I mean, how much does the average Christian have to put up with uh, in this present world? How many deceptions has Satan of preternatural intelligence built up against the truth to keep him separated from obedience to faith uh, on the narrow road of the sacramental life? which is what Jesus established for us as as the strongest force against Satan. Uh even within the the body of Christ people are trying to water down the, the path Jesus established. Everywhere you look there is the organized process uh to separate people from the moral and natural law through gaslighting and and this woke generation is probably most mostly damned and may grow into part of the group that leads to our last persecution you know their their minds are being uh, uh, formed to the point where they hate christianity on a global scale uh, and that starts with the judaism so when you separate from the moral and natural law you, you create a slide into blind insanity and there's really no stop sign on insanity you know, even what Hamas did to the, the Jewish citizens is a small example, uh, how people who ignore the wickedness in, in the level of brutality shows cause and effect of, the, you know, what's going on. So again, we should remember that when, when Jesus refers to this kingdom, he's referring to a kingdom that is both on earth, that we enter through our baptism and the eternal state of heaven. Uh, the elect ate within uh, um Uh, within the baptized, Calvin had it wrong. Uh, We are predestined into the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. We are not predestined to heaven or hell. So one of the confusions he probably had was in not understanding the sacramental nature of the kingdom. Uh, Another way to look at uh, the verse describing those who enter late could be that the mercy of God is present all the way up to our death Um, for those of a contrite heart Therefore, you, you never hear of the church make any definitive statements of who was in hell. And, uh, we'll go back to Haddock's again for this. And uh, we read But as Christ rather seems to speak here of his militant than his triumphant church, many commentators explain the parable of the Jews and Gentiles. For the Jews, after bearing the yoke of the Mosaic law, for so many ages received nothing more than what was promised to the observance of that law, whilst Christians receive a more plentiful reward for their more easy labor under the sweet yoke of the gospel in which sense Christ says to the Jews in Luke 13, publicans and harlots shall go before you into the kingdom of heaven and strangers shall come from the East and from the West and the north and the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, they are last that shall be first, and they that are first shall be last. Hence the Jews may be supposed to murmur that they who are first in their vocation to the people of God and first in the observance of his law should not be preferred to others who in these respects have been far posterior to them by the vicar uh, says St. Christendom, we here understand the commandments of God. The time for labor is the present life. In the third, sixth, ninth, and eleventh hour, example, in infancy, youth, manhood, declining years, an extreme uh, decrepitude of age, many individuals yield to the effect of the call of God, labor in the exact performance of the divine commandments, Uh, these words about many are called and and fewer chosen should just scare the heck out of people. I mean, Mm -hmm. even those who have been baptized into the church and live according to church teaching, when it comes to receiving the sacraments and and living the sacramental life um, and and obedience to faith, if they begin to fall and look at these things in more of a legalistic manner and rationalize away times when love and charity need to be expressed then you, as the, the called, can end up in the group that was not chosen. Uh, Jesus said back in Matthew 12, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So our words bring forth the state of our souls, and if our words are not tempered in a holy endeavor, neither are, are, are our souls. And so definitely not faith alone. Right. And this is another one of those
1: parables where it just seems like Jesus is being unfair. If you don't if you don't understand the deeper meaning, if you don't understand what's being conveyed here, you know, the the, the this I agree with, with what you espouse from Haddock's that there is a reflection of the uh Jews under the Mosaic Law and the Gentiles, because uh they they bull, they bore the, the full day's labor, so to speak. But in many cases, they did it grudgingly. They did it mechanically. They 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 followed the letter of the law for the letter of the law, and this is what Jesus railed against them for, because they didn't have the more important aspects of the law, which were love, mercy, compassion, empathy. So in, in that respect, uh, the one hour given with a heart full of love and compassion is worth more or at least as much as as the 11 hours that were given kind of kind of like the uh you know the the question of do we carry our crosses willingly or do we drag them behind us but kind of so the the the, the time doesn't always equate my 11 hours may not be the same as Luke's 11 hours or somebody else's 11 hours the disposition of the heart comes into into play,
2: and these parables, you know, they're written by God, so they're right. you know we stay within the confines of our doctrine of faith and morals, but when we look at these parables, they could just could take us and open our minds sometimes in completely different ways. And we, just, and, and you know, we go with it. We understand there's 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 a contextual structure to things, but we can also you know go deeper in, into our own thought and in our own way of seeing the world, and use these parables to guide us, you know, to through to through that process. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's so a never at... ending it's a never ending uh, treasure quest because <laughs> each one <laughs> yep. of these parables has so many. Uh, different layers, and if you believe like I do in the four senses of scripture, each one of these parables has you know, all these multiple layers of interpretation. There's the literal sense, there's the, you know, the uh, anagogical sense, there's the typological sense, there's the, you know, the uh, prophetic sense. There's There's all these different layers where the the prodigal son. Yes, it's about the Jews and the Gentiles, but it's also about the repentant sinner who who turns back. And so it's it, which interpretation is correct? Both. They're both correct. And, and these parables have these layered meanings on top
2: of each other. And as Catholics, we have this gift because you know we don't establish our belief through the uh, through simply the opinion of what we derive from the scripture we have that foundation of the doctrine of faith and morals and we read scripture within that foundation and we have mm-hmm. that as our guideline and even in our interpretation in the way we can interpret things and we can yeah. look at things and, and, and for uh, for our own purposes and and, and think things to a, a specific way and think that god is guiding us through that way and through that understanding Right. As long and, as we keep with the doctrine of faith and morals.
1: And and you're so absolutely correct, and it causes us to approach scripture differently. It causes us to approach scripture. I love the image that you use of a seamless fabric. We mm-hmm. we don't approach scripture as five thousand disconnected verses. It's it's all it's a seamless fabric, it's all interwoven. And 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 Genesis is tied to First Kings and First Kings is tied to the Psalms and Psalms is tied to the Gospels and Gospels is tied to the Paul's letters and Paul's letters are tied to the book of Revelation. You can't take one of them as its own entity standing by itself, but it's all how how they all fit together in a whole.
2: Yeah, the, lava, the the bronze lava in front of the veil is baptism. Paul refers to the veil as the flesh of Christ in the church. Inside the veil in the holies is our spiritual reality of the church, the mystical body, where the bread of the presence has become the Eucharist. The table of the incense has become the prayers of the saints rising to the throne of heaven during our holy mass. It just goes on and on and on in that amazing image of that seamless fabric. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, like uh, for instance when Paul talks in in Hebrews 6 and 7 talks about Melchizedek. Well, we don't have uh-huh. the 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 context of Melchizedek from the Old Testament. Those verses make no sense to us. But it's 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 Melchizedek mentioned in Genesis 14 and Melchizedek mentioned in the Psalms and Melchizedek mentioned together in Hebrews 6 and 7 and we tie it all together and it forms a complete picture.
2: And if you don't have the faith to believe that the mystical body is a heavenly reality and not just a metaphor, then you're not even going to understand Hebrews, mm-hmm. because that Melchizedek is taking us to heaven in the Holy Mass. He's taking his body, he is the head of the body, into that holy, where we celebrate the true Passover for the world spiritually. It just goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper once you you know see that seamless fabric. Yeah. So we're on Matthew twenty, seventeen through nineteen. And Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the twelve disciples apart and said to them <laughs> it's interesting how the Dewey Rames uses words uh, took the twelve disciples apart. <laughs> mm-hmm. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be made to the chief priest and the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. And shall deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified, and the third day he shall rise again. so leaving the Galilee and heading to Jerusalem, Jesus is again as a as the third time in Matthew's gospel preparing the apostles for his, for his coming death. He is now giving more detail of this, explaining who it is that will put him to death even. And again, referring to himself as the son of man, basically saying God will be killed in the flesh. If we look at, you know, Daniel saw the son of man as a physical manifestation of God. So the image, the physical part of Jesus will will die an agonizing death because he had chosen to be incarnated in the flesh of man. So earlier he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, telling of his resurrection Next, he says that the sign this generation shall be given was a sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish for three days. And third, he tells the apostles who was going to put him to death, uh, who was going to to put him to death, Uh, and that he would die in Jerusalem, though he died outside the gates. And uh, what's fascinating is most likely the exact same spot God told Abraham to sacrifice his son But then held him back from doing so Uh, The sacrifice to fulfill the promise of Abraham Was left to Christ So we also see a precursor to to Jesus Pulling us towards Psalms 22 here Where the Psalms tells us about how he would be mocked and crucified So all they that saw me have left me to scorn Psalms says they have spoken with the lips and wagged the head. They have opened their mouths against me as a lion, ravening and roaring. They have numbered all my bones and they have looked and stared upon me. They parted my garments among them and upon my vestiges they cast lots. For many dogs have encompassed me. The council of the malignant hath besieged me. They have dug my hands and my feet. Prophecies. and and putting things together with the gospel and all the imagery of the prophecies is is just so amazing.
1: And what's also amazing is you can't help, but be struck by the fact that here was Jesus that was staring down what he was about to go through this horrific suffering and death that he was about to endure. Uh, And yet all of his, all of his concern was in the direction of his compassion for preparing the disciples for what they were about to witness. So he 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 was. It's it just it it's you can't help but be in awe of it. That whereas any of us would have would have completely withdrawn into the into the fear and the self pity of what we ourselves were about to endure. Um, Jesus' total concern was for the effect that it was going to have on them. It's just, it,
2: it, <laughs> it's impossible to put it into words, Luke. And he was fully man. Yeah. yeah. Fully man, and fully God, but he was fully man, and that love right. and that compassion was just, a, you know, it was just amazing. You, know, you cried tears of blood, and you know, I think about that when you cried tears of blood. As fully man and fully God, you know, did he see, you know, every type of sin against him, every type of whore, you know, that um, people commit on, you know, children, you know, all of the wars, all of the hate, everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, quite tears of blood and say, Father, you know, let this cup pass and seeing it all being, you know, uh, you know, the second person of the Trinity. Saying, "Not my will, but thine be done," knowing all of this, you know, and still going to that cross,
1: and and knowing that he endured uh, among the agony that he went through in Gethsemane and on that cross, knowing that during that time, uh, John Benko and Luke Haskell were in his thoughts. And he was thinking about us. It's just impossible to put into words.
2: Yeah, it is. It is. So at Matthew 20, 20 through 23, then came to him the mother of the sons of Zebedee with her sons, adoring and asking something of him, who said to her, what wilt thou, she saith to him, Say that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in the kingdom in thy kingdom. And Jesus answered, answering, said, You know not what you ask. Can you drink the chalice that I shall drink? They say to him, We can. He saith to them, (laughs) My chalice indeed you shall drink. But to sit on my right or left hand is not mine to give to you, but to them for whom it is prepared by my Father. So in the Jewish prophecies, as as we have discussed in in the earlier chapters, the Jews understood that God would establish the the kingdom of David, but they had no idea that this would be of a sacramental nature. So with this understanding, the mother of James and John Uh, the sons of Zebedee, who in tradition, uh, was uh, her her name is Mary Salome, uh, uh, as one of the three Marys and daughter of St. Anne, making her half-sister of the Virgin Mary. So St. Anne being the wife of Joshua and and mother of, of the Virgin, due to the prophecies, it appears that she was referring to the purely physical kingdom When she asked that James and John sit on his right and left hand. So Jesus does not address her request talking about a a physical kingdom, but addresses the sacrifice they will endure before entering the eternal state. Those who are honored in the kingdom would not be honored through who they know or who they are associated with, which uh, she seems to be, uh, you know, uh, trying to convey, uh, but, but through the sa- their sacrifices and their devotion. And uh, we'll go to Haddock's again to get a little more in- in-depth understanding of this. We find that the sons themselves made this petition. Both the sons and their mother might, at least the sons may be said to have done what they got their mother to desire for them. And therefore, Christ directed his answer to them, you know not what you ask. You think, says Chrysostom, of temporal uh, preferments of honors and crowns, when you should be preparing yourself for conflicts and battles. Our Lord suffers these occasional weaknesses in his apostles that he might, from his instructions and corrections, render his doctrines more intelligible to them and to posterity to all of us. So the chalice, of course, is a metaphor uh, of God's suffering You know here. All of the apostles were, were martyrs except John. Uh, there's probably a spiritual lesson from from that, but it is not something I've really focused on lately. I'm, I'm John also took care of Mary, and so. But the final picture for the apostles was that image of them um, of them sitting on, on twelve thrones here, and uh, we'll go on Matthew twenty twenty four to twenty eight. And the ten, hearing it, were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that they are the greater exercise power upon them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever is the greater among you, let him be your minister. And he that will be first among you shall be your servant. Even as a son of man is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a redemption for many. <clears throat> so it looks like the rest of the apostles still thinking in a carnal way of a purely physical kingdom that had a had a problem mm-hmm. with Salome and her sons trying to convince Jesus into giving her sons a position of power. So that they're the kind of uh, she's kind of sneaking this in, you know. Uh, so. Jesus lessens the, the tension and explains the difference between the secular authorities, using the pagan Gentiles as, a, as an example, and the spiritual or ecclesiastical authorities, even who are to be servants. So the ecclesiastical servants are not to focus on themselves and power, but on the will of God and being humble shepherds. Jesus said, Even as the Son of Man is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a redemption for many. So even the shepherds are called to, when need be, give up their lives for their sheep, but on a more practical level, devote their lives to keeping the sheep within God's good graces.
1: You know, an interesting thing that our Protestant brothers and sisters miss here is that Jesus doesn't say, when he's speaking of his heavenly kingdom, he doesn't say that no one will sit to his right and his left. He he says it's those who, have, who it has been prepared for. So, in Matthew's gospel, there is a great emphasis on Jesus being the Davidic king. He's a fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. Well, there's a reason for that, because I want to read you from 1 Kings chapter 2, because if Jesus was the, the Davidic king, the queen mother was the mother of the king in the Davidic kingdom. So we read from 1 Kings chapter 2, so Bathsheba, who was the queen mother, went to King Solomon, who was her son, to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat or a throne brought out for the king's mother. And she sat on his right. So the queen sits at the right of the, uh, the right of Jesus in the heavenly kingdom. The queen sits to the right of the king. Now, you know, there's been a lot of conjecture that, about this. Well, who who sits on his left? Well, the scriptures are silent on it, but I think this is one of those things that you can figure out by conjecture, by implication.
2: Peter. If Mary <laughs>
1: sits on his right, it would be only fitting that Joseph would sit on his left, right?
2: <laughs> well, I guess that's one way of looking at it, Yeah, And uh, one, one, uh, one other um, – A thing to bring up about uh, that uh, imagery of her sitting on the right, what did he say? And Solomon is the image of a type for Christ. He said, ask, Mother, because I cannot deny your petitions.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So why do we go to Mary, you know, as our spiritual mother in the mystical body of Christ? And we do not pray to Mary. We do not pray to the saints We pray with them and we ask them for prayers. We go to her for the same reason that God purposely put that verse in his word. Right. And we are supposed to not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And that word is telling us that Mary's the greatest intercessor.
1: And, you know, and I hear people say, well, you know, well, why does God need Mary to Uh, you know, God, God doesn't need Mary for that. Well, God didn't need Mary to carry Jesus in her womb either, but that we're we're not confronted with what God needed. We're confronted with what God ordained. Uh, and that's what we must confront. And that's what we must react to. We don't have to understand it from the perspective of what God could have done, uh, you know, I, I always like to say God could have made 10,000 angels dance on the head of a pin. Uh, but we're not confronted with what God could have done. We're confronted with what God did do and what God did ordain and what worship looks like. And we look at the book of Revelation. We see the throne of God surrounded by angels, surrounded by saints, uh, surrounded by intercessors on thrones wearing crowns. And and uh, over over all of them. Is the woman clothed with the sun With the crown of 12 stars on her head Now We don't have to understand Why God put it together This way But we do have to understand That God put it together this way And and we have to follow the template That he laid for us to follow Whether or not We
2: comprehend it or understand it You know I uh, I I don't know you know, if there's any theology on this or not, but the way I see that, that intercession, is God, uh, basically, he feminizes this love through Mary, and it gives us such a more deep uh, understanding of love just by an understanding, uh, you know, a mother. And so it gives us a power of humility and I think Mary is basically a gift of a walk of humility. Mm-hmm. So we're at Matthew twenty, let's read twenty nine to thirty four. And when they went out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside heard that Jesus passed by, and they cried out, saying, "O Lord, thou Son David, have mercy on us. And the multitude rebuked them that they should hold their peace. But they cried out the more, saying, O Lord, thou son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stood and called them and said, What will ye that I do to you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes be opened. And Jesus, having compassion on them, touched their eyes. Immediately they saw and followed him. In <clears throat> excuse me. In the context of, of his coming death, Matthew again points us back to the, the begets, to the two blind men showing us Jesus as king in the line of David, uh, the same king that earlier told Peter he would pass on to him, the keys of binding and loosing, the apostolic succession of the kingdom. The blind men appeared as witnesses, the divinity of Jesus' mission, and after they were healed, went on into Jerusalem with him. So spiritually, we can see the image of the blind men as those who are in us, uh, are in sin, and who are separated from Christ, and who have been exposed to the truth of God's uh, one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church, His Body. When they acknowledged the Christ, their eyes were opened. And yet, we do not live by faith alone, or but by sight alone. But are called to take up our cross. And so yeah. this imagery shows us taking up that cross and following him into Jerusalem. Yeah, just
1: another stark irony, isn't it? The blind men recognize Jesus as a son of David, which is just what we were talking about before. But the Pharisees uh-huh. who could who, who could supposedly see so the, the ones who could see were blind, and the ones who were blind could see. It's just uh, just another of
2: the manifold ironies. Yes, yes, yes. Comes back to that sophistry, and it's so blinding, so blinding. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no, people. Right. Well, that's it for the chapter.
1: So next Monday, we will pick it up with, uh, chapter 21 and folks, we, um, really apologize for the poor sound quality at the beginning of the program, but, um, uh, nothing that we can do about it. It's just, uh, something to do with blog talk radios, uh, switchboard. And I sure hope they have that all resolved by, by next Monday. So, um. Next Monday, the 20th, uh, we'll be back. Same back time, same back channel. Have a blessed week. <laughs> Thank you. You take care. All right. God bless. Bye.